If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the December 27th, 2021 end-of-year edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm Neil Schleifer in New York. This outing of our show is devoted to one of our favorite peeps, in a conversation with an iconic actress and her wife. The phrase, she needs no introduction, is overused, so I'll give her one anyway. Meredith Baxter is an American actress and producer known for her roles on the CBS sitcom Bridget Loves Bernie in the early 70s, the ABC drama series Family in the late 70s, and the NBC sitcom Family Ties for most of the 80s. I have two amazing women sitting right in front of me. They are Meredith Baxter and Nancy Locke. And of course, you may recognize Meredith's voice. She was on the NBC sitcom Family Ties, as well as, and I just realized this too, Meredith, I remember catching you in the 1992 TV film, A Woman Scorned, The Betty Broderick Story. Yeah. You blew me away that with that. Wow. <laughs> you were amazing. Anyway, folks, yes. So that's Meredith Baxter. Of course, she's an incredible actress and has done quite a bit of other things that we're going to be catching up with her. She is here with her wife, Nancy Locke, who Nancy... Nancy is, uh, was in the construction business for many, many years. Are you still doing that? No, I'm retired. You're retired. Lovely. Oh. Building contractor. And they've been together for 13 years? Going on 13. Oh, my God. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking, Meredith? <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about not only same-sex marriage, but more importantly, marriage. I myself have just recently... Married the love of my life, uh, the woman of my dreams, my best, best friend. And I wanted to have you both in here because you've been together for quite some time. And despite the fact that you're two women together and the dynamics of two women, I really wanted to talk about the day-to-day beautiful moments that you have being married and the day-to-day things that we have to deal with when we're 
living with another human being. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're married to a man or a woman. It really doesn't. But I wanted to welcome you to both to the show. And thank you so much for your time today, too. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Really excited to be here. So first of all, I love to hear the backstory. I love to find out where and when did you meet? Do you remember? Of course. (laughs) <laughs> but it depends on which one of us you ask because we have different answers. Oh, good. Okay, let's well, let's start with Nancy. Do you remember? I do remember. I, I actually, Meredith and I talked on the telephone for a year before we met each other. And when I was talking to her on the telephone, I didn't know who I was speaking to. I just knew I was talking to a woman named Meredith. And the reason for that is because I was checking out getting sober. And my therapist gave me Meredith's telephone number and said, here's a woman that may be able to talk to you about sobriety. So I called her and spoke to her on the phone about my woes and my problems for, uh, it wasn't a full year, but it was it s- like several it. months. <laughs> it <laughs> it is a long time. And then I stopped calling her because I was not interested in being sober. And time went by, probably six months went by, and I called her because I wanted to know if she wanted to just do something with me. My therapist also suggested that she might be a good friend. So I called her and asked her if she'd like to have coffee. And uh, so when I met her for coffee, I didn't know, again, who I was going to meet. And I met her at a Starbucks in Santa Monica. And she was walking out of Starbucks because she thought I was going to be late. So she went to go get a magazine. Uh, um, you, excuse me, you were late? <laughs> <laughs> Traffic. Anyway, and I saw her walking out the door. And I went, oh, God, that woman kind of looks familiar to me. <laughs> I, I think she might have been on TV or something. And I think her name might be Meredith. And it, it hit me that she was somewhat of a celebrity. And I was going to meet her. And I got shy and embarrassed. And Did you? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. But she didn't know that. I acted like I was all cool, like, oh, no big deal. And we sat down and had coffee, and it was instantly taken with how interesting she was and uh, how funny she was. She has a great sense of humor, and that really spoke to me at that first uh, meeting. And you had known each other, but just on telephone for uh, over a year. She'd actually known me. I don't think she ever said anything to me about her. It was just me talking to her. Wow. And she listened. And occasionally would give me some advice or just steer me in a direction. And I I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know that she had five children. I didn't know. I didn't even know her last name. So it was. uh, How beautiful. Actually. It's kind of interesting. That's I love that. Okay. Now your take on that day. Um, Not unlike as Nancy described it. uh, I knew that I was meeting Nancy. And as we were talking on the way here, trying to go over that, my recollection, I think my understanding was that part of our meeting might have been for social, but I was still sort of thinking that, oh, it might still be about sobriety, but I, it doesn't really matter probably, but that's I think probably where my head was. And as a sober person talking to someone who's interested in it, it wasn't about being coy or anything like that. It was about right. keeping the focus on the person who's questioning stuff. So that's why I didn't offer a lot about myself. It didn't matter just my experience was what was at play. So I walked out of the Starbucks to go get my New Yorker and come back in. And Nancy was just going out. And I sing, I thought, oh, that, but that's her. And we wound up going in and sitting down and talking for, I don't, well, you were, you were on your way to therapy. I was on my way to a group meeting. The, the funniest part about that day was that I had no idea that Meredith was gay. And the way that she decided to let me know that was so awkward and, and interesting because, because I said, you know, I, I have to go. 
And this was really great. I'd love to have coffee with you again. And out of nowhere, uh, she just says, oh, and, and by the way, the woman I'm seeing. And I, <laughs> I, I, I had no idea how to get that information out because I hadn't been out in the gay world very long. And so I really didn't know. What's the secret handshake? Yeah. Yeah, it's a secret handshake. Some verbal clue you throw out there? I just didn't know. So when she dropped that line on me, and I'm not going to swear here on radio, but I was rather shocked and said, that kind of was maybe something you might have wanted to tell me earlier. And no, uh, no, no. <laughs> really was interested in having a friend. Exactly. Well, that was the intention of what, what your first meeting was because you haven't, you didn't see her, you didn't know yeah. really who she was, or was there was no expectation. No. Right. I love that. I really enjoyed my time with her. Mm-hmm. I felt it was really alive. She's bright and funny and interesting and has such a heart and a great energy that I. Didn't want to lose contact, but I thought it would have been disingenuous of me to not let her know. Exactly. <laughs> and it wasn't about, oh, let's date or anything. I just wanted her to know. Yeah. And as kind of a newbie to the scene, I didn't, you know, I didn't know how that would be received. Didn't know anything. I, how soon did you come out before you actually got to have that Starbucks coffee date? I'm thinking or- about two years. Two years. Yeah, yeah I think so. It was about, so. about right. 2003, I think. And the whole process of coming out, which is, I think, more of an internal process of coming out to ourselves than anything, but it can be quite an intense experience. It can be quite beautiful. It can be also quite scary. And I would think that someone that is in the public eye, it could be something that would be a little bit frightening, possibly. Mm. But I wanted to know when you did decide to publicly come out, how was that handled by, first of all, by you? How did you handle that? And what about the people that were around you? I know you have five children. Well, my children had no problem with it. They said, I, I just want you to be happy, you know, which is what you want every child to hear from their parent. I was just hearing it from my kids. Yes. But I was very protective of the public eye in the sense that I, you know, with anyone that I was with before I ran into Nancy and a while with Nancy. So I just didn't know how that was going to affect my professional life. And I didn't want to chance it. So I think that created some issues for us for a while because Nancy has been out for a long time. Anyone in my social life and my personal life, there was no secrets there. I think just everybody knew. Right. But there was this whole thing I had to come to when, I don't know if you read about this. Oh, please don't make me talk about this part. Um <laughs> I was doing a job that was a little web series, Mm -hmm. and part of it was with Kathy DeBuono and Jill Bennett and Suzanne Westenhofer, and they were shooting part of the scenes on the Sweet Cruise, the initial launch of the Sweet Cruise, which was a lesbian cruise. Mm -hmm. And I understood that if I signed on for this series, there was a potential I was going to be outed because it was on a cruise ship with the gay community. Correct. And if I'm here, I wasn't, was I going to be a pretender? What, you know, what was my role going to be? And I just didn't tell them anything. I just said, yes, I'd like to do the show. And Suzanne Westenhofer, are you familiar with her? Yes. Yes. Uh, she's become a good friend. And we spent a lot of time with her on the cruise. And when, the last night of the cruise, uh, she said, to, she announced from the stage, her comedy routine ended with, if you're not out, come out, in the words of Harvey Milk. I remember turning to Nancy and saying, you know, I, you know I, I, I've got to 
do something. And in my mind, I thought, well, I'll put an ad in the paper. <laughs> you know, something like a little wedding announcement of sorts. Mm, Meredith's gay. Ah, thanks. <laughs> Bye. Um, I, I just didn't know. I was an idiot about it. And so we arrived back in Los Angeles and I called my manager right away to kind of say, what do I do about this? And he said, good thing you called because the Globe and the Star are on top of this. They have pictures. They want to know about what's going on. They're about to come out with a story. It was like, wow, I am not ready what? for that. And so they put me in touch with Howard Bragman. Is this a name you know? No. He's, uh, I don't know what the network is. Would you know? I think he works for a lot of networks. He's a fixer. Ah. In a sense, but he's he's a publicist yeah. and a gay man himself, and he has felicitated the coming out of many people oh, in okay. the public eye. Right, right. So he took me in hand and said, okay, we are going to get you a spread in People magazine, and you're going to come out on the Today Show. So what the f- You can say it. <laughs> it's like, this is a little over the top. You know, I'm an older actor. No one's going to give it doesn't need to be done. Please, let's just downscale this. I can't do this. But he said that otherwise they're going to take the story and run with it and it will not be anything. And you anything. have no control. None. You'll have no control. None. So I said, okay. Then Nancy and I wound up going to New York where we did the spread at my house with two of my kids who were in this. I mean, the youngest, the twins were in the show, Peter and Molly. I mean, in the, in the shoot. And we go to New York and the night before... We're to go to the Today Show. I'm crying in the bathtub. I thought it was this was going to be the end of everything. And it was like setting myself on fire on public television. And this is just going to be the end. And I'm going to say I'm gay. And like, who's going to give it? And it'll be the end. Well done, Meredith. And Nancy came into the bathroom and sat down. And while I'm sobbing away, and she said, Do you know, it would made a, have made a huge difference when I was a kid, seeing someone who I knew, who I recognized, come out in a public way and claim that. So that it just would have helped make them feel less alone. People are isolated. And because I was, what, 55 or something when this is happening, I didn't have that childhood angst. I didn't have, my angst was something else entirely, but it wasn't that. I didn't know how to identify with that. So I really needed to hear that from Nancy. And she said, this is a political act because it will mean so much beyond anything I understood. And, you know, I just went with that. That's what kind of made it okay for me to do it because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how I was going to say it, but I eventually just said that I, you know, it's a latent life decision. I realized I am a lesbian, which explains so many things in my life, and then it was done. And we left NBC Studios. It was drizzling and foggy, and we had an umbrella, and we just walk, and I felt like, I don't ever have to do that uh, again, Yeah, which wasn't quite true, but it was enough at the time. And we went to Tiffany's, <laughs> and we wandered around the store, and we tried on rings, and we bought little rings. They were just like we made it through the day rings, I suppose, and uh, it just made all the difference in the world to have done it with Nancy right there with me. I it's nothing I would have ever designed for myself, but ultimately it was it was a good thing. And it's so true what you had said, Nancy, too, about 
I know personally for me, when I was younger, I'll tell you, there were no women that were out. And of course, obviously, too, if you were a gay man, uh, in particular, if you were in, enter- in entertainment, forget about it. But there were no role models of women who had came out. You had you hopes. Always, you had hope. Yeah. Well, you always kind of thought, I mean, I kind of thought about, hmm. But I remember uh, when you're a young girl, you have with your friends that you're in school with, you have sleepovers. And I remember... I loved being with my friends. I loved having the sleep. I loved going to sleepovers. First of all, my house, I was in a really rough neighborhood. So when I got to go to have a slumber party at someone's house, I was ecstatic Mm. (laughs) because I went to a private school. So their homes were really beautiful. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there's, there's like, look how wonderful this is. And I felt really great. And as a child, too, all you know is that you love your friends. And I remember going to a slumber party and I remember the girls all being like in a corner and they were basically not allowing this other girl to even like communicate with them at a slumber party. And they were throwing around these words that I didn't know. I didn't understand. And I got it that she was being targeted as a lesbian, as dyke, as all these names that did not sound very loving and kind. Mm. They were treating her so horribly. And all I could do was in my mind, I said, I want to be anything else than that because I don't want to be thrown out of the tribe. That's our primal, right? I mean, that's something from lifetime after lifetime of being in the cave with the tribe because once you're isolated, once you're kicked out, you're going to be eaten by a dinosaur. You're not going to be able to survive. (laughs) So wanting to belong to a group when I saw that, I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be whatever she is. If that's true, I don't want to be it mm-hmm. because there were no role models. Right. And then as we got, as I got older to see that whole episode with um, Ellen, with Ellen. Yeah. Mm. I'll tell you, that was it's so like, powerful. Where were you in JFK was shot? It's the where, same thing with yes. when Ellen came out. I yes. think any gay person can identify with that day and that show and when it happened and where you were and what effect it had on you. I mean, it was a hugely brave act, followed by other brave acts by Melissa Etheridge and Katie Lang. I'm not really sure of the certainty of the who came out first, but when they it was it seemed to me that it was kind of all at the same time that people were like getting brave upon other people's bravery, which was wonderful. And when people started coming out, it was huge. It was huge. It was huge. It was validation. And I remember leading up to it. Do you remember leading up to the airing of that episode? We knew it was coming. There were leaks out in the press and there were threats. There were bomb threats at the production facility for Ellen. There were people saying, if you do this. If you air this, we're going to tell the advertisers to pull out. I mean, they did a financial attack on her. They did threats on her. And that's also what was building up this anticipation. It was like, are they going to pull the episode? Are they going to come forward? That's why, wow, I just get really emotional. That's why when I saw that episode, it wasn't so much about the fact that she came out on national television. It was the fact that she came out with so much hate being thrown at her Mm -hmm. and threats And I thought it was extremely brave. Yeah. And the episode itself was touching, but it was also very funny, Mm, which mm. made it palatable for so many people that wouldn't have been able to accept it. I mean, to do it with humor was classic. Yeah. I find that humor and talent 
You know, <laughs> yeah. when you're extremely talented and you have that ability to be creative and express yourself and touch someone, Katie Lang is a perfect example of that too. She opens her mouth and starts singing. You're just like, first of all, I don't care who you love. I just love your voice. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so important about it, getting over the stereotypes that are put out into this world. So I do thank you because that bravery and thank God you had someone who loves you so much to be with you. That move that you did, although scary for you at that time, so many people are now able to step out and say, if she can do it, I can do it. If she has five children and she has all this attention on her, I can do it. I think at the time, one of the things that was most important toward the end of the interview when you said to him, if I can be the lesbian next door that you know and that you love, then I've done what I needed to do today. And I think that made a huge difference because you put a quote unquote normal face to what a gay woman's going to look like. You're not scary. I wanted to to be. (laughs) (laughs) You're not scary. Well, you're, you know. Well, Your family I, I ties, to, mommy. I wanted to be beyond just me coming out. Yes, I wanted to. It has to it has to mean something somewhere along the way, uh, which would be like if if I'm the only lesbian you know, well then maybe that'll help you. And you've 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 liked me before. I'm not chained. I'm no <laughs> different. Maybe it'll then be easier for the next person that you run into. That oh oh okay, it's you're not going to bite. Yeah yeah. Well exactly. And isn't it? It is, you don't realize the impact that you have because you don't get to see the ripple effect. Mm. My beautiful wife, it wasn't a thing of saying, oh, hey, everyone, I'm a lesbian. It wasn't that. What it was for her was, hey, everyone, this human being over here, I love her. I love her soul. I love her kindness. I love her heart. I love everything about her. And she's cute. She's sexy. She calls me sexy. So... (laughs) It wasn't even so much about coming out. It was about coming out with your heart and saying, you know what? Mm. I love this person. Now, if you want to put a label on me and call me this or call me that or say this or say that or say I'm supposed to wear a certain kind of clothing or cut my hair a certain way, whatever your stereotypes are, that's your business. But I love this human being. And yes, she happens to be a woman. Once she did that, it actually opened it up for other women Mm. to... Say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to hide my love. When I go out on the street, I'm not going to not hold the hand of the person that I love and that I take care of when they're sick. I'm going to hold their hand. I'm going to give them a kiss on the cheek. And that was such a brave thing for her to do in her own little world. And it has that ripple effect. When possible, when it feels right for us, we will hold hands and I will introduce her as my wife, or I will say no to the salesman. He'll have to come back when my wife is here, because that is a political Oh, act. yes. Because not just my saying it, but I want people to get used to hearing it. So it ceases to be alarming or anything out of the normal. Oh, it's okay. It's no different than my, my spouse, my husband, whatever. Yes. It's my wife. Yes. That's our relationship. Yes. And so that's, that's our goal. Ah, Mm -hmm. folks, if you're just tuning in, I am Christine Blasdale and I am sitting in studio with Meredith Baxter and Nancy Locke, who have been wonderful enough to come in studio and talk to us today. We'll be right back with more Meredith and Nancy after this quick break. So don't go away. A friend of Dorothy coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. 
Back in a time when homosexuality was illegal in the U.S., the question, are you a friend of Dorothy, was sometimes used to determine one's sexual orientation without others knowing its meaning. The phrase dates back to the World War II era, and just after, the MGM movie The Wizard of Oz was released in 1939. The name Dorothy refers to the character Dorothy Gale in the movie played by the legendary actress and gay icon Judy Garland. In the movie, she sings Over the Rainbow, with the lyrics, If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why oh why can't I? Certainly, these words have been uttered by gay people who have experienced the loneliness of the closet and second-class citizenship status. So if someone asks, are you a friend of Dorothy? Now you know. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Roby Martin. Hello, my name is Cheyenne Jackson, and you may know me from the movies, television, or Broadway. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Neil Schleifer, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. And now back to Christine Blasdale in conversation with Nancy Locke and her wife, Meredith Baxter. So you have the person that you love, you know, you want to be with them. You would do anything in the world for them. And before you're married, you have all these wonderful, beautiful feelings, right? And then you get married. And nobody told me that after you get married, there is this heightened oh, I can't even put it into words. And it's not a responsibility like, oh, responsibility. It's not that. There's this honorable responsibility Hmm. that came over me. I remember we had just gotten married and we were at the airport. And before she was going on her flight back home, I went to the restroom and washing my hands. And I looked in the mirror and I just looked at myself and I said, something has changed. And as I'm walking back to the bar area where we're having a little something to eat, as I'm walking back, I got flooded with this emotion. Hmm. And it was the most beautiful, I I can't even put it into words. And maybe I'm, I'm hoping that you, that you can, but something changed when you take those vows and you give those vows to the person that you treasure more than anything on this earth. So I wanted to know, can you remember what that feeling was like before being married to each other? Well, we were actually talking about this not that long ago that for me, I'd never been married before either. And when Meredith and I got married, I was 58, I think, 58 years old. And it's fairly old for a woman to get married for the first time. And Meredith had been married three times before. You know, I never (laughs) knew that I was ever going to get married. So I never wanted to. Because I didn't want something that I could never have. So for me to finally have that be available to me was like, oh, my God, <laughs> yes. um, I'm going to get to do this. And it grounded me in a way mm-hmm. that was very different for me. That was after we'd been together for quite a while because it wasn't legalized until we got married. And it made a difference that I was, again, I wasn't prepared for it either. But I also didn't have anything to compare it with. How about you, Meredith? Do you, do you remember? Yes. Do you know there's that, that part of me that at one time thought, look, oh, there I am. I'm getting married again. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, so many of my decisions were like, oh, all right, I'll do that. Because there was no heart or understanding behind any of it. But 
and I have said this to Nancy, that I did have a feeling of gravity about it in the best mm -hmm. sense, though, mm -hmm. not as a burden or a weight or some onus was on me. Well, no, the onus in the sense of I'm responsible now in some way, not in some big overt way. It's just in a personal way that I want to do this right. I've actually made choices here, not just sort of went along with what was happening, that I've decided that I want to be in this marriage with this woman and I don't want anything more than this. And this carries a weight and an importance and a substance. It's, uh, it was an imperative. It became something really wonderful. Most of it like after the fact because I'm usually too much in something at the moment to really get what's going on. And afterwards it was just, it settled on me and I, and I embraced it. Yeah. It still does. After these years that we've been together, whenever I think about the fact that we are actually married, it still takes my breath away. Yeah. When you know, I, I think the other day when I was saying that I was, oh, I'm in it with her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're together. This is us. We're doing this. She's by my side. I get to help her if she asks me to. And then sometimes you do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting when Meredith and I were first dating, a year into our relationship we broke up. And we broke up for a, a number of reasons. We needed to break up. <laughs> we needed to break up to be right. And yeah. uh, and one of the things that came out of that is that we had we're seeing a therapist, and the therapist saw us separately when we were broken up. And she asked me a question. She said, "There are lots of kinds of relationships in our lives. For example, there's the dating kind of relationship where you go to movies and you have a good time and you laugh. And there's." Your relationship, it's perfectly fine. And there's another kind of relationship that changes you spiritually. Which kind do you want, Nancy? And I said, oh, I want the spiritual kind. I really want my life to be changed. I really want to be in it with somebody, not just somebody, somebody wonderful and somebody that thinks I'm wonderful. And the interesting thing that we found out later is that Meredith was asked that exact same question by our therapist, and Meredith's answer was, I want the one that you go to the movies with. <laughs> <laughs> because I did not believe the other one existed. Oh, wow. So, you know, I wasn't going to hope for something that I couldn't have. Right. So when we found out that we gave different answers, we laughed and then kind of looked at each other, and it was like, I guess this isn't going to happen. But... When I heard, because uh, I saw her afterwards, and she, and after you had seen her, and right after I said, oh, I want the movie kind, she said, Nancy, what? A spiritual relationship. And it was like, I switched on a dime. Uh, it's like, I do too, and I want that with you. Yeah, you definitely changed at that uh, point. Our relationship mm -hmm. took on a whole different meaning and a whole different life and a different trajectory. To, we got married. Well... And so much of it is growth. I believe so much mm -hmm. of it is growth. When you're in relationship with anyone that's close to you, a romantic relationship, sexual relationship, however you want to term it, we tend to, because the other person is a mirror. So we tend to be triggered. Mm, for sure. The old shadows come right out. Mm -hmm. The old fears will pop up. And it's how we handle those fears, how we handle those triggers. But that other person is going to, that's their job. Their job is to actually bring up those fears and those triggers 
to help you release them. Oh, for because sure. Because you're not going to go anywhere. I know. I, I've often you said those. to my friends that okay. it, the best way to know yourself is to get involved with someone. To be in relationship with somebody you else is, you <laughs> is not even about them telling you. It's about what shows up for you. Yes. It's about what comes up in your relationship with another person. Again, it could be a friend of mine. It's how I'm triggered or what I'm relating to something that happened to me a long time ago that has nothing to do with Meredith, but yet she's stepping on that wound. How are we going to deal with that? Thank God we've got a lot of tools to work with, and thank God we had a fabulous therapist at the beginning of our relationship. Long before we even needed a therapist, we got into therapy because we wanted to know how to talk to each other, and more importantly, we wanted to know how to listen to each other. Oh, that's a big one. Well, how many marriages could be saved just by listening? That has been <laughs> the number one tool that we have had. It's a huge resource to have to get past all the stuff because... Before, if I had created a wound for Nancy or something and she started to tell me how she'd feeling, I'd be going, well, wait a minute, minute. why would you say that? Because I'm not hearing her at all, on defensive immediately. So there's no satisfaction here. She's not heard because I'm busy making sure that I'm okay and not attacked because I come from a place of always being attacked. Well, that's not going to happen here and I'll show you. Right. What I've um, learned too that in marriage, in a relationship in general, there's only room for two people. And the ego is another entity, person, that is it's crowding. It's crowding. It's crowding the couple. Yeah. And what happens is when we are triggered, when we have those fears, the ego will step in. And I think that it's something that can be so wonderful when you have that ability to step back. Because we all are going to have those triggers. We're all going to have disagreements. We're all going to have those moments where we disagree or argue about a particular thing. And I think it was, I saw this just yesterday. Someone said, remember when you're in an argument, it's you and your loved one against the problem, not you against your loved one. Hmm. So it's not a me versus you. It's a us versus the problem. Great way to look at it. I right. Like that, yeah. And it just takes it away because it's with so much in society in general, even outside of relationships, outside of marriages, how we deal with each other, how we, I mean, my goodness, you know. Yeah. Just even watching how people interact in a restaurant or a, or a uh, store, it's just like, wow. It, <laughs> what's it, going it's on? It's like basic communication 101 is out the door. So yeah, we we're really lucky that what it also helps that I find her endlessly fascinating. Uh, I, I, just, I thought well, that's, a, that's because you are endlessly fascinating. <laughs> But that's helpful. And to be curious, you need to be curious in a relationship. Yes. And um, I love that. I'm going to take that with me today is it's us against the problem. Yeah. Because it, that's so true. And I think a sense, I mean, for me personally, one of the most amazing characteristics of my wife is that she is the funniest human being I've ever come across. That's great. And humor even when there's just something, you know, when, when things, when life doesn't, you know, when you spill the milk, <laughs> when, when you crash the car, when something happens, having that ability to have a sense of humor about life's ups and downs, I think it's absolutely critical, not only for your relationship or marriage, but also for your health, for your own well-being and health. I'm curious too. I want to know what you're both up to. Are you now, Meredith, you're still doing are you doing the, you're not doing the web series right now? No, right? no, that died a long time ago. 
<laughs> what, are, what are you doing? What you, what you got going on? Um, right now, I am actually, I feel very busy. I'm on the board of the Ensemble Theater Company in uh, Santa Barbara, and I'm on the, the advisory board of Newhouse, which is a drug and alcohol rehab for men. And I'm painting and just waiting to see if just maybe some job will come along. What do you paint? What kind of... Uh... Uh, I use watercolor mainly and uh -huh. sketching watercolor. And what about you, Nancy? What are you doing? Um, you know, since I retired I and, and moved to Santa Barbara, we moved to Santa Barbara two years ago. <clears throat> two years ago now? Almost. I've gotten involved. I'm on the board for Habitat for Humanity, which is oh. really important in Santa Barbara right now because of... The two back-to-back -back disasters that we had in December and then January with the fires and then the mudslides, a lot of people have been displaced. There's a lot of hardship. So Habitat's gotten involved in the recovery part of not just building, but recovery. So we're helping people rebuild their homes. So that's been a really great avenue for me. And I also started volunteer teaching at the Santa Barbara High School, where I'm involved with the trade arts program there that uh, is a wonderful program about teaching kids that they don't necessarily have to go to college, that there is other avenues for them. And Fantastic. this particular one is in construction. So uh, we built a tiny house. And the other, other two high schools in Santa Barbara built their own as well. And then we just had them auctioned off. It's really fun. I, I, I was afraid at first because I didn't think the kids would be able to relate to me because I'm older. And I was concerned that they wouldn't pay attention to me and they wouldn't follow what I was asking them to do. And it's really opened my eyes up to. They I was, feel your I was, intention. They I can was feel really, your intention. I was really wrong about yeah. what youth are ab about. No, they feel your intention awesome. right off the bat. And they're yeah. fun and they're great and they're engaging. And to be able to help these kids is just been, I mean, their teacher, their main teacher is just a phenomenal, wonderful man. And so to, to help him one day a week, one morning a week, I go in there and I help these kids is just. It's, it's been wonderful. So it's a great experience. I wanted to talk to you about, you are in an industry that is very male dominated. This is also why it's so important that you're in the schools because there are also young girls that have the ability to be in a field that is very male dominated in construction and in general contracting in architecture as well. How was your experience in that industry throughout the years? Hard. hard. <laughs> it was hard. It was hard from the very beginning. Uh, and it, 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 it stayed hard. It got different. You know, did I get more respect? Probably. Was it, did it get any more normal for the men on, in the field? No. Um, again, just because there wasn't, and there's not a lot of women in, in construction today, but I started as a laborer and worked my way up and it was really rough and very discriminating towards me. It was a double whammy for me to be a woman in, in a trade that I wasn't supposed to be in. And I was also a gay woman. Oh, my so gosh. It was, uh, you know, and, and <laughs> we were talking the other day about the Me Too movement and how it's really triggered some wounds in me because I, I'm hearing people talk about what has happened to them in their industry as a woman. And it's reminding me of how difficult it was for me on two levels, because I would say I'm a carpenter or I'd be working on a crew with a bunch of men and inevitably either the boss or one of the guys on the job site would try to kiss me or have sex with me or I would been was pushed into closets and pushed on the floor and oh, pushed on, on trucks. And, and if I said no, which was <clears throat> always, uh, not only was I told, you're lucky I even hit on you, have you looked in the mirror lately? 
or, oh, that's right, you're a dyke. Oh, my God. So it was. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, my God. So, oh, my God. Otherwise, of so, course, uh, you right. go along So with you this. don't want me because you're a dyke. So not only is it sexual assault based on the fact that you're a woman, but then it's also a homophobic sexual assault. It was very derogatory. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is I was, I, I was very young. I was only 21 years old when I got into construction. So I really took that on as a – it was really hard on my self-esteem. Of course. So you yeah. have that constant barrage of – not only was I – I had to prove myself, so I had to work harder than the other guys on, on the job site because I was always being watched. And, of course. And anything course. I did wrong was a reason to say, this isn't working out for us. Right. So you had to prove yourself all over. Yeah. It was hard, but it was also very rewarding. I mean, it's it's a great thing at the end of the day to turn around and go, I built that. <laughs> you know, it's not like I moved some papers around and made some phone calls. I built something today. Or I, and now it's like I taught somebody how, how to do something. It's really rewarding. It's a great feeling. But yeah, it was a difficult job to choose. I can imagine. I can imagine. I was looking for something that was a perfect blend of something I could do physically mentally and creatively. And being in construction answered all those needs for me. Well, and it comes down to what you love. It's your passion. If it's something that you love and what I find is the perfect job or career is something that you love to do so that it doesn't feel like work. It's not like saying, I'm going to work. Oh, I got to go to work today. It's, I get to go to work. I get to go to work. How lucky am I? Because I'm I'm doing something that I enjoy. I would guess that it's the same thing for you too with your career as, as an actress. It's something that you enjoy doing and you happen to be very good at it. Because I know because I saw you play Betty Broderick and you <laughs> rocked it. <laughs> that was a bad... I, I, I want to talk about that. Okay. Um, Meredith did... Uh, God, was it 1992? That, that was, sounds about right. Yeah. Pretty sure. So it was the TV film, A Woman Scorned, The Betty Broderick Story. Again, your portrayal of her was so astounding to me. And you were nominated for an Emmy. Mm -hmm. You didn't win for that? No, I've never won an Emmy. The bastards. You should have <laughs> won for that. Okay. So knowing her story, can you remember, well, before you took on the role, obviously, hearing her story and what led to her ultimate, um, is she still in? Yes, she is. Okay. She's still in prison. If, tell our listeners, for those who don't know about Betty Broderick, if you don't mind, just a little bit, and what it was like when you first took the role and did the portrayal of her. Betty Broderick was the socialite wife of a very well-known, well-established lawyer down in San Diego. She put him through law school, put him through medical school, and so he became a lawyer who helped in medical lawsuits and stuff. And they were very wealthy, very comfortable. They had four children, and she was the showplace mom. She was at all the soccer games. She had all the parties. And so they were very high profile in the neighborhood. At one point, Dan started to have an affair and then divorced Betty and married this young woman whose name escapes me at the moment. But she is interpreted as being a younger version of Betty. After Betty has done all of that, for Dan to support him in what he needed. Now she's out of the picture. And she, as the story goes, she eventually murdered him and his new wife. Yes. This story came to me as it was just on uh, the story uh, at that point, and they were putting together a writer. Dick Lowry was the director, and Ken Kaufman was a, a, one of the producers. And they were wonderful. And I got to sort of shape the story 
with them. Not I didn't don't mean to sound like I wrote anything or produced anything. I don't do that, but I was in on the, the discussion about what you know what what worked for show scenes and stuff and what didn't. I'm, that's how I remembered it anyway. We'll be right back with more Meredith and Nancy after this quick break. So don't go away. On the hunt for Dorothy. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Before the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, gays and lesbians were often kicked out of the U.S. military if they were discovered. The Navy Investigative Service, or NIS, often led the way in investigating homosexuality within its Navy ranks. In the early 1980s, agents were looking for a person named Dorothy in the Chicago area. They had noticed gay men were saying they were friends of Dorothy and believed if they could find Dorothy, they would also find a whole nest of gays to discharge. So the NIS launched a huge hunt for the elusive Dorothy, hoping when found, she would reveal the names of gay service members. But that didn't happen. What they didn't know was the term friend of Dorothy was a code phrase for gay. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Roby Martin. Hi, I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Neil Schleifer, and you're listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. And now the conclusion of Christine Blasdale's conversation with Nancy Locke and her wife, Meredith Baxter. At this point in the chat, they're still talking about Meredith's portrayal of Betty Broderick in A Woman Scorned, the Betty Broderick story. Now, just to put this in context, I was in, I think, the second going on the third year of a nine-year divorce, and I was fueled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got the job, and the first thing I did was I went out and I bought a new Mercedes. It was time to replace the old one. And I bought the biggest car they had. I called it my two-bedroom <laughs> um, musical station because it got had a great music system. It got terrible mileage, but it was big. And it could drive over my ex-husband's Porsche. <laughs> that was the requirement. And so I took all of that anger with me into putting this, into acting in this show. And as I was doing my research, I read everything. And there was lots and lots of coverage about her. So I just ate it all up and thought, well, this woman was, you know, I would never have murdered my husband. But I certainly understood why she did everything she did because she was just so maligned and marginalized and treated so badly. And we shot the movie, and Stephen Collins, who played the fa- the uh, Daniel, he was bitterly in the other camp, thought that it was she was just a harridan, and she was a little bit of a harridan. So we were on very opposing sides, and which, I didn't which, see... Which was natural for the... So the that, that, that was great. Anyway, in the course of the movie, she is very aggressive. And it's always very true to the storyline. There was a restraining order put about against her from going to his house, and she would just waltz in anyway because the kids were there, and she just delighted in pushing that envelope. She terrorized him. She went in the house when he wasn't there, and she spray-painted things and wrote pig and, and damaged stuff all the time. She drove her big Suburban through the front door of their house at Christmas time. <laughs> this is great. I never a, saw the movie. It's just like seeing it right now. Oh, yeah. Well, got into <laughs> a knockdown, drag-out fight on yeah. the front lawn. It was just shot in Hancock Park here and, and it was a, a cold misty night 
and uh, the, every, the grass was so slick, and we it was a real fight. I we were trying, we were hitting each other. We just pulled no punches, and eventually, when they had the police come to break us up because that was the way the scene was, they had to pull us apart, and I just kept fighting. I was I was in it. I and, and just <laughs> you know there was so much um, anger that was just misplaced and had no place to land in me that uh, it really worked well. I totally threw my back out in the process of doing it. Okay, we shoot the movie, and just as we finished filming, we found out that the jury trial, which was going on at that time, yeah. was a hung jury. So we, before we even left the stage, we went, got to make another one, have to do a follow-up. So they have to find out what happened, why is it a hung jury, and they got to follow the trial. So that was great in my preparation this time. I got to read the transcripts of the, star, the tra uh, trial, and I found out that everything I had read in preparation for the first movie, all these interviews and stuff, because as soon as Betty was put in prison, she hired a publicist. Oh, yes. So everything I was reading was her spin on her story. Yes. So, of course, I was really manipulated, as was the entire country of people watching and following her story. We're all on these side. The side the women were in support of Betty. But I am just now reading the transcripts and saying, oh, this woman was a narcissist. She was in this all for herself. She would steal her kid's puppy from their father's house and then call him and say, what a terrible father your father is. Let me go help you find your puppy. Wow. You know, just really manipulative yes, and yes. calling them ugly messages for the kids and calling them traitors for living in this household. So she was brutal to everybody. And I remember seeing an interview with her while we were still in preparation for the second movie of her in prison before the first trial. And Oprah had gone to see her. Oh. It was all very solicitous and all that because everyone believed in her. But after the second one, I mean, after the uh, the trial was over and she's in prison, they go to visit her and they say, well, what do you think now, Betty? And she said, well, I think it's good that something about some solicitous comment about Dan and his wife being dead, but I survived. And it was like a little bit of demon yeah. had just come out of her. And that's who I wanted to capture. I felt like my job in doing this movie was to say, okay, this is who she was. This is what happened to her. But I want you to see the person inside so that you can find you in there. Boom. Yes. Otherwise, it, you're just going to write it off. Oh, she was a horrible person. Yes, to be sure. She, yes. I think she was a horrible person. But there is a little bit of that strain of reality of feeling bypassed, you know, set aside, dumped for someone else, a better version of yourself. He had resources that she didn't have or the, the money, the money issue. I'm going to tell you something so amazingly ironic cool. or synchronicity. What's that? You were talking about that moment where you saw her in prison mm -hmm. where Oprah did the interview. Do you know one of my first gigs in entertainment, so to speak, I was actually living in San Diego. Um, I actually... As a fluke, because I am not, this was not my job. As a fluke, someone who had a satellite truck said, Christine, we got a call right now. We got to go to the women's correctional facility, da, 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 da. 
Oprah Winfrey wants to do a live hookup with this woman that's in uh, prison. Will you go in and do the thing? And I'm like, wait, I got to go in. Pr- I got, I'm like, what? It'll pay you. And I was in college. Wow, now, right. Wow. So they're like, it'll pay you a hundred dollars. Right? You know, that's, you're like, oh, wow, a hundred dollars. So we go and I am find myself in the, pr- that. so with that camera shot, I'm there. I'm on the other side of the camera. Oh, wow. Startling, and, huh? And here's something that you didn't know because that was live. That was a satellite hookup, right? So Oprah's asking her question. Now, I can't hear what Oprah's saying, but I'm watching Betty. I'm sitting, I swear to God, this is what's so weird about this. I'm sitting just like this to Betty. You played Betty. Okay, I'm sitting like this. And she has her little earbud in, right? And and she's talking. And you can hear she's listening to something that Oprah said. And at some point, she takes out the earbud and she puts it down and she says, oh, no, that's that was not agreed upon. That No, no, no. And my producer is in my ear saying, oh, my God, she's going to leave. She's going to leave. Don't let her leave. And, I, and I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do? Oprah just they just went to Oprah's face. Right. When they saw that she was uh-huh. getting so they didn't want to see that she was being upset. Right. So my guy who's <laughs> paying me a hundred dollars. Uh, do something, do something, because she's gonna she's gonna stop the the interview. So as she's taking off her stuff, she's looking right at me, and she's like looking at me like, "Help me, help me!" In her eyes, and I said, "Big picture, think about the big picture." And she calmed down, and it was like she completely morphed into this calm. She put her earbud back in, and she looked at me like that. Did you ever find out what it was? And then the that, interview continued. That, that what did she say that upset her so much? I think she was talking about the murder. I think it was Betty did not want to talk about mm-hmm. something had been said and I think it was that she was going into the thing about the murder and Betty wanted to talk about women especially in divorce situations and the husband the husband being the one that's the you well, know, which is which happens very valid. Oh, you know? of course. So but appealing to women and the largest women's audience, hello, was Oprah Winfrey, right? But isn't that funny? Yeah. Man. <laughs> so you pulled that together. Yeah. I kept her in the chair. Good for you. And then I wanted to get the hell out of there. <laughs> I bet. I did. Wow. That's what's just so amazing is that you talked about seeing that interview on Oprah. And I remember that. I do. I remember that like it was yesterday and going, the big picture. Think about the big picture. Please don't. Ooh, flashback. <laughs> yeah. Flashback. I have, oh my gosh, time is, is going by and I've had so much fun with you and such a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Before we go, I just want, if there's anything, the Habitat for Humanity, the, the work that you're doing, would you like to give out, is there a website or a Facebook page or anything for people who want to get involved with Oh that? yeah, we, we really love volunteers. So you just go to Habitat for Humanity, Santa Barbara. And there's a little area up at the top where you can click on volunteer and you can volunteer and come help us. We're still digging out. You can come help us with that or you can help us on any any of the other projects that we're doing where we're actually building. We need volunteers. We need hands. And we also always need cash. Awesome. Okay. And so it's uh, Habitat for Humanity, Santa Barbara going to the Facebook, uh, you can definitely check them out on Facebook yeah. too. And there's Facebook. probably, they have their own website too. And their website. Yeah. Fantastic. And what about you, Meredith? Anything you want to let people know about what you want to do? No, I don't have any, no, I don't have anything. Just, uh, 
Just drive carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Take care of your honey and drive carefully. Oh, Meredith Baxter, thank you so very much. Nancy Locke, thank, thank you, you so very much for so much. Uh, such an enjoyable time. And and I would love to have you back any time that you want to come back on. If you have other things that you got going on, we'll definitely let people know. Well, thank you. Cool. Thank All right. I bet we've been together for a million years. And I bet we'll be together for a million more. Oh, it's like I started breathing on the night we kissed. And I can't remember what I ever did before. What would we do, You can watch A Woman Scorned, The Betty Broderick Story on Crackle, Amazon Video, and Tubi TV. Christine Blasdale is no longer a regular on staff at KPFK, although she occasionally pops up during a fun drive. Nancy Locke and Meredith Baxter are still married and still happy. We hope their story will inspire you to take chances and find your joy in the new year. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Neil Schleifer. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, and if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder... We're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. I'm Neil Schleifer in New York. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay masked, and stay socially distanced. From everyone at IMRU, we wish you a happy new year and hope you keep your resolutions within reach. I know that all I want for 2022 is the absolution of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy. Is that so much to ask? We close out with gay singer Daniel Cartier and his rendition of Auld Lang Syne. Should old acquaintance be God.